The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. This morning we're going to be finishing the little epistle of 2 Thessalonians. That's sad to me. I hate ending a book. It's my opinion that the largest theological contribution of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians is what they have to say about eschatology. And that is an extremely important subject. Uh, the Bible just talks about it continually. The, the return of Yeshua is mentioned in every one of the New Testament books except for Galatians, where it's alluded to, the very short books of 2nd and 3rd John and Philemon. The return of Christ is a major theme in the New Testament. And as you study this theme, you're going to find that the first century church expected the Lord to return in their lifetime. And they thought this because Yeshua taught a first century parousia, and so did all the New Testament authors. The theme of the second coming is nowhere stronger than in the epistles of the Thessalonians. Over a quarter of first Thessalonians and nearly half of 2 Thessalonians deal with problems and issues regarding the parousia of Christ. <clears throat> I think it's obvious that the Lord's return was prominent in Paul's mind from the beginning to the end of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Because this subject is in every chapter of the book. Now, I know some will question that statement because you might look through chapter 3 and say, where does this talk about eschatology? Well, as my wife said, I can get eschatology out of any chapter in the Bible, okay? <laughs> but I really do think it's here. And as I was thinking this morning, I think I'm, I maybe should have entitled this uh, Joy, Peace, no, yeah, Peace, Grace, and Eschatology. That would have been a good, maybe a good theme. But I see eschatology in these last three verses, and I'll show you how. <laughs> I'll show you how I got that, okay, when we get there. <laughs> As Paul wraps up this second chapter to these Thessalonian believers, he gives us his fourth prayer for them. Just three chapters long, and this is the fourth time he is praying for the Thessalonians. He says, Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times, every way. The Lord be with you all. Now, he says the Lord of peace here. Who is he referring to? Well, in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul writes, May the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. So the expression God of peace, referring to the Father, is used five times, but this is the only time that the phrase the Lord of peace occurs in the New Testament. But look at what Paul said to the Ephesians in 2.13-14. He says, But now, in Christ Yeshua, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. Christ, He is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We know that the Lord, Yeshua, is the Lord of peace. And when He was reassuring His disciples on the eve of the crucifixion, He spoke to them about peace, saying, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives it to you, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The Lord the Thessalonian believers serve was the Lord of peace. And whatever their circumstances in life, they were to receive the peace of God which surpasses all understanding that will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Yeshua. The Lord the Thessalonian believers were trusting in, this Lord is, of course, He is Christ, the Lord of peace. Now, I think by saying Lord here, He is emphasizing the divinity of, of the Savior. That's why he calls him Lord. Because in the Greek, this would be translated kurios. And kurios comes from the word, the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the Hebrew name for God. So the Greek Septuagint would have kurios here for that. So I think again, and Paul continually does this through the New Testament, stresses the deity of Christ. So the Father is called God, the God of peace. Yeshua is called the Lord of peace. And the Spirit gives the fruit of the Spirit, which is peace. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, suffering. So 
what we see here is all three members of the Trinity are the source of peace for believers. The Hebrew word shalom, which was behind Paul's thinking, referred not just to the absence of strife, but to overall well-being or wholeness. And that's the idea of peace. It's just this overall well-being. You're just, you know, you might have experienced once or twice, right? Just this, this feeling of everything is all right, everything is okay, this feeling of wholeness. He says, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The pronoun himself here is emphatic in the sentence here in the Greek, emphasizing his personal involvement. In it. it's, it's the Lord who is giving you this peace. The Thessalonians were going through persecution. We've seen that. They were battling false teaching. We've talked about that. And they were dealing with unruly church members that didn't want to work and wanted other people to support them. Each of those situa- situations can create a tension and a strife in the local church. So in this battle, Paul prays for the reality of the Lord's peace continually through these circumstances that they're facing. Now, peace with God is a gift that comes from Christ through justification by faith. We see this in Romans 5.1. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Yeshua the Christ. Paul's addressing believers here, the family of God, and he says, since we have been justified. And the Greek here uses the aorist passive, having been justified. The aorist points to the past act by God, it's a divine passive, to declare sinners righteous. Now, since we have been justified, indicates that God has already accomplished this work. Because this work has been accomplished, he says, we have peace with God through the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Now, what does peace with God mean? It means that the hostility is over between man and God. It means the war is over. It means that God is no longer our enemy. He's no longer promising judgment and death. Peace with God is the new status between God and the believer which flows from the reconciliation accomplished in Christ. By virtue of Christ's death on the cross, it is possible for men who are separated from God to become the friends of God and to have peace with God. So peace is one of the fundamental characteristics of the Messianic kingdom anticipated in the Tanakh and fulfilled in the New Testament. It's our relationship with God, and the only way we have that peace is because of Christ and because of what He has done for us. He says, peace at all times and in every way. So peace with God also results in inner peace and difficult circumstances. Now, it doesn't always do that because if we're not trusting Him, if we're not relying on Him, we don't get that peace. But if we do, it's a peace that deals with our circumstances. It just lets us know that everything is right between myself and God. God is a loving God. He's a loving Father. And He controls every aspect, every circumstance, everything that happens in life. That will bring us peace if you really understand that, if you really believe that, knowing God's in control and that He loves you, you should have peace. He says, the Lord be with you all. So Paul gives here what the Jews, Christians, would have recognized as the ironic blessing. And we see this in number 6. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put My name upon the people of Israel. Now, the idea here in Hebrew is that the priests are to take Yahweh's name and put it on the people. And you're like, how in the world does that happen? Well, what he's talking about here is talking about putting the character on the people. and Putting an understanding of who God is on the people. And the ironic blessing here spells out the character of Yahweh. It talks about His graciousness. It talks about His peace. And that's what our text we're looking at in Thessalonians talks about. But this helps us see that peace is an attribute of God. It's what's called a communicable attribute. That means it's an attribute that God can share with us, that He gives us. And I think if you think about God, you understand that obviously it's one of His attributes. He doesn't have any lack of perfect peace. All right, He's got peace at all times. God's never stressed out. He never has anxiety. He doesn't worry about things. He has this perfect calmness. He lives in tranquility, perfect contentment. Why? Because he's in charge of every single event that happens in eternity. And if you control things, why would you have anxiety? 
You know, we get anxiety when, oh, this didn't work the way I wanted to, or now what do I do about this? God never has to deal with that because He controls the universe. And if you would understand and believe that He controlled your life in every circumstance, then you can have peace too. So this prayer should be understood as a petition that the Lord would bring the Thessalonians' peace in the midst of their conflict, in the midst of whatever they're dealing with, the persecutions, that they would have peace. Now, the nature of this prayer stands in contrast with the agonizing situation that the church is dealing with. Okay, They're being persecuted greatly. We're going to talk about that a little more. But he was just talking about the fact of false doctrine and people believing the wrong things that's causing problems in the church. And I think that false doctrine causes anxiety and destroys peace. Sometimes people get a false peace through false doctrine because they, oh, everything's okay because God said, no, you really didn't say that. But false doctrine causes a lot of problems. All right. Paul's earlier prayer about the God of peace in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 comes directly after a warning to avoid every kind of false teaching in 5.22. So he connects those, the false teaching and the lack of peace. And I think we see a lot of anxiety today, especially recently, because of the false teaching of Zionism. All right, And the churches, ever since the situation over there in Israel, the churches are pushing this Zionistic doctrine and it's, it's a terrible doctrine. It's a damnable doctrine, all right? And people are anxious because of it, because something happens in the Middle East, everyone all of a sudden thinks, the end of the world's coming. You know, we're going to all die, okay? The start of, they think, oh, this is the start of World War III, or the Great Tribulation's happening now, or it's the day of the Lord's coming, all because false teaching. So it can cause great anxiety. In verse <clears throat> 17, Paul writes, I, Paul... Write this greeting with my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. So Paul is praying for them. He prays in verse 16. He prays in verse 18. And right in the middle he says, Oh, I'm writing this greeting to you with my own hand. It's like, okay, why did you just throw this in right now, Paul? Well, because, again, he's talking about peace, he's talking about eschatology, and then he's talking about grace. And you say, how does this deal with eschatology? Well, let's see if we can pull it out of here, okay? <laughs> Paul dictated this letter, as most of the writers did. Uh, he's dictating it. We have an amanuensis or a secretary writing stuff down. And Paul, what he does here is he takes the pen from the amanuensis and he begins to do it himself. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting. I'm doing this with my own hand. And in Galatians, he says, you see what large letters I write. Paul had eye problems. So his signature was distinct. But here he's saying it out loud because everybody's not reading this letter. Some are hearing it read to them. And so they're saying, this is from Paul. So Paul's amanuensis was probably Silas. We know that Silas was with him, and we know that Silas was used as amanuensis. Uh, Peter tells us that. He says, by, si by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. So he's writing to them using Silvanus. So Paul's personally using his signature, closing these re remarks to authenticate this letter. Now, he did this in other letters, in 1 Corinthians 16.21, Colossians 4.18. But this time his intention is to let them know that this is letter is legitimately from him. And this is because they had earlier received a forgery claiming that the day of the Lord had already happened. Okay, that's eschatology. Okay, you see where I'm coming from? Okay. So he, he wants to verify, the, I want you to know this letter is from me, the other stuff you got is not. And that's the idea. The false teaching he's talking about here has to do with the second coming. And it doesn't appear that chapter 3 has anything to do with eschatology until we understand how he uses this and why he's writing this thing about genuineness. He says, the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. They had gotten a letter from someone claiming to be from Paul that the day of the Lord had come. We see this in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Yeshua, the Christ, and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by the Spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord had come. Now the word letter here is epistole. This is the same word that Paul uses in our text for letter. They received a letter claiming to be from Paul 
And so now he closes the letter with the sign of genuine. So, okay, that was confusing. How would they know? They get a letter that says it's from Paul. How do they verify that? They don't call Paul. Did you send us a letter? They can't text him. You know, so, I mean, it could be a long time before they could get word back to him, and then he gets word back to them. So Paul says, all right, I understand there's some confusion. I'm going to write this. I'm going to sign my letters this way so you know they are, in fact, from me. And the fact that uh, the Thessalonians believe the false letter that tells them the day of the Lord had come tells us something very important about their view of eschatology. And this is really what's important here, all right? They got this letter. They believe this letter. Let's look at this text. He says, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Has come here is enestemi, and it means has come. Okay? Now, some commentators try to do cartwheels about this because they realize the problem this brings here. And so they'll say, well, it, it, it doesn't really mean has come, it means is coming, but that's not what it means at all, all right? It simply means they believe that it had happened, it had arrived, and therefore it was actually there. They were in the day of the Lord, it arrived, and they're in it. Now, the Greek commentator, Dean Olford, translates the passage this way. He says, To the effect that the day of the Lord is present, not is at hand, the verb used here occurs six times in the New Testament, and always in the sense of being present. In two of those places, Romans 8.38 and 1 Corinthians 3.22, the things present are distinguished expressly from the things to come. So the Thessalonians weren't afraid that the day of the Lord was coming. Paul taught them that it was coming. They were afraid it had already come. They're in it. All right, now, you say, so why is that a big deal? Well, you have to know what is the day of the Lord that had come. How does Peter describe it? Well, let's look at what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.10. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Now, you reading that, what do you think? That sounds kind of like, okay, this is, this is burning up. This is the end of everything, right? He goes on in verse 12. Alyssa, you got to stop, okay? you got to listen to me. <laughs> Question and answers are later, that's right. He says, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will set on fire and dissolve, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Now, most Christians read this text and they would say the day of the Lord, as Peter describes it, is the end of the world as we know it. Okay? It's just the end of the world. It's all done. It's all over. They claim that the destruction of the physical heavens and earth is going to happen in our future. That's how most people view it. It happens in our future. It's the destruction of the whole planet. Now, if you're not familiar with apocalyptic language of Scripture, and I think most Christians are not, you're not going to understand what Peter's saying here. See, if you approach the New Testament's apocalyptic language without recognizing for what it is and don't know how to deal with its tones, its images, and its symbols, you're for sure going to go astray. Okay? Now think with me on this. If the Thessalonians thought the day of the Lord was the end of the world, as most people today teach, and the destruction of the physical heavens and earth, how did they think it already happened? I mean, seriously, think about that. How did they think this happened? Wait a minute. The, 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 the day of the Lord is the whole, everything burning up, everything being dissolved. Okay, so now they look out the window like, okay, everything's still cool here. So how, how did they do that? Does that make any sense at all? Well, and that's why this verse is an important verse because it shatters the paradigm that views the second coming as a fiery destruction of the whole earth. It shatters that paradigm. You can't believe that if you see what's going on here. If the Thessalonians believed the modern view of the nature of the second coming was to involve an earth-burning, total destruction of the planet, how could they have been deceived about its arrival? I mean, why wouldn't Paul just write them back and say, look guys, look out the window. Okay, just look out the window. The earth's still there. Okay, everybody, life is going on. You know, don't be stupid. How are you thinking, you know, the day of the Lord already came? Well, because of the fact they thought it already happened, tells me they must have viewed it, the nature of the second coming differently than most folks view it today. They must have viewed it as a spiritual event. 
Because they thought it happened. They knew life was going on as normal, but they thought it had already happened. They thought it had happened, but yet there was no physical evidence of it. And throughout the Scriptures, we see that time defines nature. Now, if the time is it already happened, then the nature of it, would you'd be seeing it. Okay, This is something we know it, it happened. But time defines nature because they haven't seen any of this stuff. Now, Unlike the Thessalonians, most believers today think that the Lord's coming and the day of the Lord will be a physical event. That's why most Christians today reject that it has happened because they think it's physical. G.K. Beale, in his commentary on 2 Thessalonians, um, and he's dealing with chapter 3, verse 16 specifically, he writes this. He says, We too often think that those who habitually oppose false teachings are pugnacious, and cause dissension, and that peace comes by agreeing to disagree. And what he's talking about here is the deal with these people. You know, he's talking about peace in our passage, and he's talking about false teaching. So he says, you know, some people just to have peace will just, let's just get along, okay? Let's just not fight, let's just get along. People, that's not the way to deal with false teaching, okay? And there's too many people today that are just willing to, oh, we just got to get along, you know. No, if false teaching is wrong, it needs to be confronted, it needs to be called out. He says, although this is true about certain things, in other words, we get along on certain things, other things we have to take a stand against, there are a number of issues about which the church must take a stand. The deity of Christ, the Trinity, justification by faith. I agree. You know, when people are off on these, we can't just join hands with them and sing kumbaya. We've got to call it out. We've got to say, this is false doctrine. This is not what the Bible teaches. Okay, so, so far, I think that's great, Bill. I agree with you. Then he says this. I love when they, think, they say things that make me smile. <laughs> he says, Paul is defending the truth. He's talking about 2 Thessalonians 3. Paul is defending the truth that Christ must come back bodily to raise his people bodily. Where? Where does Paul even mention that? In anywhere in this text or anywhere else? Where do the Scriptures say that Christ's coming would be bodily? I mean, again, most people believe that. Where is it in Scripture? If it's there, then okay, I, that makes sense, right? But it's, a, it's amazing that something is, that's not there is believed and defended and held by so many people. Nowhere in the New Testament is it stated that the parousia of Christ was in the flesh. Now, the Bible emphatically states that the first coming of Christ was in the flesh. All right? Look at what 2 John 1.7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Yeshua the Christ in the flesh. Such one is a deceiver and an antichrist. There were Gnostics out there teaching you know, Christ wasn't, he really didn't come in the flesh. He wasn't really a human. He was a phantom. <coughs> Excuse me. Teaching this nonsense. And he says, no, this is important that you understand that Christ came in the flesh. But nowhere does it say that the second coming would be in the flesh. The Bible doesn't talk about a physical, bodily return of Christ. Let's look at a few coming, a second coming texts and See if we can show you this. All right. <clears throat> Mark 13, 21. And then if someone says to you, look, here's the Christ. Or look, there He is. Don't believe it. What? Why not? I mean, why not believe it? Yeshua seemed to be stressing that His coming is not going to be a physical, bodily coming. All right? So if someone says, here's Christ, or there... <clears throat> they're not to believe it. Why would they not believe it? I mean, if His coming was to be physical and bodily, wouldn't someone be able to say, hey, He's over there? They were not to believe that because His coming was not to be physical, it was not to be bodily, and yet it would be seen plainly. And you're like, well, how's that happen? How would you see the coming? They would see the coming in the judgment that was to fall on Jerusalem. That was pretty evident. That was something that was very physical. The Roman armies came against Jerusalem. And destroyed it. In Revelation 1 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. And see, people read this and they say, See that? I mean, you're going to see him, you know, you see this Jewish man floating in on a cloud, like surfing it. I don't know if you ever tried to stand on a cloud. 
<coughs> they don't, it doesn't work too well. But. And this, this text here, again, here's the problem, people. If you're not familiar with the Scriptures, you're not familiar with the Tanakh, the first three quarters of the Bible, then you read this and you're going to make stuff up. He's coming with a cloud. Okay, he's standing on a cloud, he's using a cloud to surf, whatever. But if you're familiar with the Tanakh, you're going to understand the coming of, a, of God on a cloud speaks of judgment. Okay? Psalm 104.3 says, He lays the beams of His chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds His chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. And then here's a verse you need to hang on to. You need to learn this verse. You need to mark this in your Bible. Because this is a verse you will use to deal with people who say this coming has to be physical. All right? An oracle against Egypt. An oracle is a judgment, a pronouncement of judgment against Egypt. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud. He's coming to Egypt. Okay? So what happened in Egypt? Did they look up and they saw this cloud and they see God riding on it like a surfboard coming into, oh, here comes God, we're in trouble. No. It says the idols of Egypt will tremble at His presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt. So the Egyptians are going to see this and they're going to melt, but what are they seeing? Well, if you go into chapter 20, we learn that the Assyrian army, God used them as an instrument of His wrath on Egypt. And so the Assyrians came into Egypt and they destroyed it. But the text says, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud. Egypt will tremble at His presence. God came to Egypt, but He didn't come in a physical body. There wasn't a physical manifestation of God. How did He come? He came in judgment through the Assyrian army. In other words, His presence was made known by the judgment. But it was the Assyrians who were literally present. Again, nobody saw God on the cloud doing any of that. Okay, that's judgment language. God's coming in judgment. He's coming upon, it says, those who pierced Him. Who's that? That's Israel. Okay, they're the ones who pierced Him. And as a consequence of His coming in judgment, it says, all the tribes of the earth will wail. Now, the earth here is from the Greek word gay. And it means soil, country, earth, ground, land, world. The tribes of the land is a familiar designation for Israel, the people of Israel. The Jews crucified Yeshua and they were going to be punished for it. Look at Acts 2.36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Yeshua whom you crucified. Peter tells the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court, the ones who condemned Christ to death, he said, Yeshua, the one you crucified. They pierced him. And he, would, and he says they would wail at his coming. The wailing would be because of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman army. So God came to Jerusalem, but he came through the Roman army to bring judgment on Jerusalem. Yeshua told them that they would see his coming in Matthew 26, 63. But Yeshua remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Yeshua said to him, Well, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay, coming on the clouds, that's judgment. He tells the high priest, you're going to see this. So when do you think it would happen? If the high priest is going to see it, doesn't it have to happen in the high priest's lifetime? Well, yeah, it does, and that's what he's telling them. All through the Bible, they're telling them, this generation, some of you standing here, soon, quickly, shortly, it was going to happen in the first century generation. The destruction of Jerusalem was evidence of the Lord's coming on the clouds for that historical group of people. <clears throat> but are we to see this only as a judgment coming on Israel? Well, I think the full preterist or consistent preterist sees this judgment coming on Israel as the second advent, the coming of Christ. Yeshua said that He would come in the lifetime of His disciples, not just to judge Israel. He said He would come to bring glory to the Father with His angels and reward every man. So this is a second coming judgment upon them that happened in AD 70. He says, every eye will see Him. Now, we need to see that this is not a physical bodily coming of Christ, but a coming in judgment. The idea of seeing here is not the idea of seeing with the physical eye. It's rather recognizing, understanding. 
The destruction of Jerusalem would cause the tribes of Israel to recognize that Yeshua was indeed the Son of Man, the Messiah. Now, Toby Sumter, who is an associate pastor of Doug Wilson's church in Moscow, Idaho, he put out a video titled Gary, The Gary DeMar Debanco, okay? Attacking basically Gary DeMar. And Toby says this, I want to be clear, I want to be clear, denying a central creedal confessional doctrine, okay? What, you know, this is not the Bible, people, okay? It's a, it's a confession, it's a creed. Somebody wrote this, men wrote this. Not under the inspiration, they just wrote it, all right? But he wants to be clear that denying a central creedal confession doctrine, like the coming of Christ in person, I don't know where there's, you know, that's not in the Bible, but it is in the creeds, okay? So therefore, we've got to stick with the creeds. In person to raise our physical bodies from the graves, and the final judgment is a deadly and lethal disease like the Black Plague. So one thing we see here is that he puts the resurrection at the time of the judgment and the second coming. So he's right there. He, puts, he connects those together. But here's what he does. To prove his doctrine of a physical resurrection, Sumter quotes Job 19. Okay? Job 19, 26 and 27. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Now, the problem here with this doctrine that he's, Scripture he uses to prove his doctrine, is it really doesn't prove his doctrine. Okay, it does if you use the ESV, and it does if you use many translations. But if you go to the Hebrew, this verse is actually saying the opposite of what they see here. Uh, Hebrew scholars Kyle and Delich translate verse 26 this way. After my skin thus torn to pieces, and without my flesh shall I behold Eloah. Without my flesh. Not in my flesh. He's saying without it. Alright? And in their commentary on verse 26, Kyle and Delich write this, We cannot in this speech find that the hope of a bodily recovery is expressed. So they're saying this is not proving what they think it's proving. Okay, they have a translation that seems to indicate that, so they're basing it on a translation. Listen, people, if you're going to build a doctrine on a scripture, go back to the original language, go back to the Hebrew, go back to the Greek, and make sure that the translators got it right. Because you know what? Translators are biased just like every one of us, right? And so they're not going to, they come across a doctrine and they're like, well, I don't get what that means. Let's just say this, okay? Let's just say that's what it is. So, <coughs> excuse me, translators are human, <coughs> they're biased. We've got to check up on this. So the Bible doesn't teach a physical resurrection, but it does tell us the time of the resurrection. The Scriptures testify that the time of the resurrection was to be at the end of the Old Covenant age. And that's what Daniel said in Daniel 12, 13. He says, But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place, stand, that's the resurrection, in your allotted place, at the end of days. Not the end of the world, not the end of time, the end of the age. We know this happened in A.D. 70 with the destruction of the Jewish temple. So the disciples knew that the fall of the temple, the destruction of the city, meant the end of the Old Covenant age and the inauguration of the New Age. Now why would the teaching that the day of the Lord had already come so upset the Thessalonians? Why did they get so upset about that? It was upsetting to them because Paul had promised them at the second coming they would get relief from their persecution. So here it is, we're in it, we're not getting any relief, okay? Things are bad. The believers at Thessalonica were suffering greatly for their faith. Let's look at, let's go back to chapter 1. Therefore we ourselves boast about you, Paul's talking, we ourselves, he's talking about Silas and Timothy, we're boasting about you, in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. So Paul says, look, we're, we're boasting about you guys to the other churches because you guys just take an amazing stand in the faith. You're dealing with all this. You're, you're being steadfast in the midst of all these persecutions. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, Paul compares their suffering, the Thessalonians' suffering, with the persecution of the Christians in Judea. And if you think about it, that's a pretty severe persecution because people were dying in Judea because of their faith. Stephen was martyred. James was martyred. The persecution against the Thessalonian church began during the time Paul was there, when he was in the city, and it continued. So he's saying this brand new church in Thessalonica is dealing with this severe type of persecution that Judea is, where the, the believers are being killed 
for their faith. Then he says this in verse 6 and 7. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now, who is he talking to in these verses? The Thess- oh, that I know, the Bible says to the Thessalonians. Okay, so we're like, okay, that must be, there must be Thessalonians out there today somewhere, right? No, this is a first century church. And this is basic, this is, you know, hermeneutics 101, but you have to understand he's writing to real people. And he tells them, those real people, believers, he says, those who afflict you. There, the Thessalonians in the first century, they're being afflicted. And he's, he wants them to understand that they're gonna, God's going to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So the people who are afflicting them, God said, I'm going to repay them. And I'm going to grant relief to you, the first century Thessalonian believers. So Paul is telling them, believers, in the first century, that they're going to get relief from their suffering. When did he promise it would happen? When does he say they get When they died? When will it occur? He says, when the Lord is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels at the second coming. That's the second coming, people. So listen, if the Lord has not returned yet 2,000 years later, as most of the church believes, what did this mean to the Thessalonian believers to whom he wrote? I mean, it's deceiving, okay? It's actually very deceiving. Let's say your house is on fire, and you call the fire department, we're on the way, we'll be there soon, we'll be there shortly, okay? And you're in the house, and well, they actually are not coming for a couple years. Who, who cares in a couple years what they do? You're gone, that fire is, your house is destroyed, your life is ruined, so to, for Paul to tell these people, listen, I know you're suffering, but God's going to repay those who are making you suffer, and He's going to give you relief, and He's going to do it when the Lord returns. So if He hasn't returned yet, guess what? He basically deceived the Thessalonians. Now, I don't know what Christians who think do with these texts like this. How do you deal with this? What, what, what kind of answer do you come up with? It meant nothing to them. It would have been deceptive because the only relief they're going to get is death. Okay? Because the second coming, I mean, again, these guys are dust now, okay? So I don't think if the Lord hadn't come yet, they sure didn't get relief. Now, can you show me something in this letter that would indicate that Paul switched his intended audience to people thousands of years in the future? I mean, because people read this text and they go, oh great, God's going to give us relief. Wait a minute, you're not a Thessalonian. And you're not suffering the persecution you know, in the first century. But that's how Christians read this. But there's nothing you can do to take this and, you know, because he doesn't say, hang on because I'm coming in a couple thousand years. And it's not really to you Thessalonians. I'm talking to people who are going to read this later. I'm talking to some Americans. They'll be sitting in their living room reading this by the fire and understand the great persecution they're suffering. It's all nonsense, okay? This is written to real people in real time. So are we to believe that Paul wrote to the first Thessalonians who were suffering, but yet it had absolutely nothing to do with them? You know, that really doesn't fly with thinking people, and that's the problem. Christians have stopped thinking. They shut their minds off. They just you know, go by their emotions or whatever they feel instead of thinking, digging into the Word of God, and asking questions. Let me add here that there is no scripture that explicitly teaches that Yeshua would return in a physical, bodily fashion. But, there are many texts that tell us His coming would be soon, shortly, quickly. Some of you standing here, this generation, the Lord is at the door. I mean, tons of verses that talk about the time, nothing that talks about a body. An understanding of the language of Scripture will help us see that His coming was not to be physical. It was to be a coming judgment on Old Covenant Israel. Now listen, <clears throat> the judgment was physical. His presence was not. Okay, They didn't look up and see the Lord flying. You know, Here He comes, we're in trouble now. He's going to spank us. No, it, the Roman armies came. And that's, that's how they saw it. And that's what they saw. Our text, I think, in 2 Thessalonians 1-2, one six and seven here clearly tells us that Paul and the Thessalonians expected 
the return of Christ to happen in their lifetime. It could not give them relief. It could not punish those who were afflicting them if it didn't happen in their lifetime. This is consistent with Paul had already taught them in the first letter. Again, first letter, every chapter talks about the coming of Christ. Second letter, every chapter, if you include three, talks about the coming of Christ. But the whole reason he had to write and put his signature on this was because of eschatology, because of the problems that were going on. <coughs> the view that the church today holds on the parousia is at odds with Paul's teaching. So, who got it wrong? Was it Paul, or is it the majority of the church? You know, the church at large is still waiting for the parousia over 2,000 years since it was to happen soon. They still say it's happening soon. Anybody talks about the parousia, talks about, it's soon. Wait a minute, soon to you? How is it was soon 2,000 years ago, and it's still soon? We just don't, again, you're not thinking if you don't get what's going on here. Paul said the first century believers would see it, so who's right? We're going to trust Paul, we're going to trust the Bible, we're going to believe what preachers are telling us today or other people are believing that, yeah, it's in our future somewhere. It's nonsense. Now, in light of all the <clears throat> clear time text, why does the majority of churchianity still reject a first century coming of Christ? Why can't they see this? I think the main reason is because they're looking for a physical event. And just like the Jews in the first century missed the coming of Christ because they were looking for a physical deliverer, a Messiah, a warrior prince Messiah who would free them from Rome. And so when Christ comes, they're like, a dying Messiah on the cross. We don't want that. We want a physical deliverer. The same thing happens now. The church doesn't want some spiritual event to happen in Jerusalem. They want to get sucked off the planet. They want to be free from problems. They want the Lord to come back and change everything. All right? Well, that's not what the Bible talks about. All right, so Paul starts his prayer. He stops for a minute and says, hey, by the way, I'm writing this. Here's my handwriting. I'm writing this. Then he goes back to the prayer. And he says, the grace of our Lord Yeshua the Christ be with you all. Nearly all of Paul's letters begin and end with grace. The word grace means free, unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. Keep that in your mind. That's what grace is. The heart of the gospel is that God's grace or His unmerited favor is extended to sinners. Because Christ paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, God's holy justice is satisfied. Human merit plays no part in man's salvation. Did you get that? Human merit plays how much part? Zero. Zip. Nothing. But I have to pray the prayer. But I have to do... Uh, no, no, zero. You don't do anything. You don't add anything to this, okay? Human merit plays no part. I, I think we understand that. I hope we understand that. But do you understand that as Christians, we are also to live by grace every day? See, all the Christian life is a matter of grace. We're brought into the eternal kingdom by grace. We're positionally, we're practically sanctified by grace. We're motivated to obedience by grace. We receive strength to live the Christian life by grace. And we receive both temporal and spiritual blessings by grace. The entire Christian life is all about the grace of God. And to live by the grace of God is to live solely by the merit of Christ. To live by grace is to base our entire relationship with God, including our acceptance and standing with Him, on our union with Christ. To live by grace is to recognize that in ourselves, we bring nothing of worth to our relationship with God. Because even our righteous acts are like filthy rags in His sight. To live by grace means that we understand that God's love is not conditioned on our obedience or our disobedience, but on the perfect obedience of Yeshua the Christ. And here's another verse that if you don't know, you need to memorize it, you need to mark it so you understand it. Paul says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Now we know he's talking about Adam here, but here's what I want you to understand. The word made here, is not causative. It's declarative. We get the difference between that? Not causative, okay? It didn't make you be a sinner. It declared you that. You are a sinner. Those in Adam were declared sinners. It's imperative that we get this. By one man's disobedience, many were regarded as sinners. He doesn't say they were made sinful, but made sinners. 
The whole human race has been constituted legally as sinners. That's our judicial standing before God, and it's based entirely, it's based solely on Adam's act of disobedience. Because of Adam, we're declared, you're all sinners, separated from God. That's one side. But thank God there's another side. He says, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. By the righteous act of one man, the Lord Yeshua the Christ, the many were made righteous. So our salvation is based entirely on Christ and from Him and in Him. My being a sinner came from my relationship with Adam. All my righteousness comes entirely from my relationship with the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Yeshua was regarded and treated as a sinner that we might be regarded and treated as righteous in His sight. As a believer, I am righteous. I am as righteous as Christ. That's the only righteousness God accepts. I will always be righteous as Christ because I am in Christ and Christ never changes. Neither will I. Your salvation and mine depends only entirely exclusively upon the obedience of Christ. And people today that are pushing salvation by your personal obedience don't understand what Christ did. You know, it's not what Christ did, then something else you have to add to it. You know, the Catholic Church teaches, yes, Christ died for your sins according to the Scripture, but it wasn't quite enough, okay? you got to cover this. you got to have acts of obedience, okay? And I got into an argument with the Catholic about this. I'm saying, so works are involved. No, no, it's not works. I'm like, really? Well, what do you have to do there? You don't have to do anything. So I said, so you can, can you lose your salvation? He said, yeah. I'm like, how can you lose it? Well, by murdering somebody. So, okay, so then I have to do right to keep it, right? Don't you see what you're saying? If I can't do bad things, then I have to do good things or I lose it. No, that's not about Christ. It's about Christ plus you help him out. He doesn't need any help, okay? He did it all. He bore the, everything for us and we stand righteous in his sight. Believers, you're either as righteous as Christ or you're damned for eternity. The only choice you have, okay? No other choices involved. This closing verse <clears throat> is identical with 1 Thessalonians 5.28, except for the addition of the word all. He adds all on there. And I think he probably does that because he wants to include even the unruly. You know, the unruly people there, the ones, the believers that aren't working, they need the Lord's grace too. The entire church needs the grace of God to deal with the persecution, to deal with the false teaching, to deal with these unruly members. Now let me close this morning with this. If you have experienced the grace of the Lord through the Gospel, you are now to be a channel for that grace to flow to others. Okay? Look at Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, that here, and this is a hint on purpose clause, so the purpose is, is the word grace here is, that, is the Greek word haros. And he says you're to use words that build up. Why? So you will give grace, haros, to those who hear. So, if you're at odds with anyone, perhaps because he or she has wronged you in some way, you're going to be inclined to think that this person doesn't deserve words that build up. They deserve words that put down. But grace is not getting what you deserve. It's undeserved. It's undeserved favor. Grace extends to others what Yahweh has extended to you. So we're to be like Yeshua who was gracious to those who didn't deserve it. Okay? So what is the means of grace here in Ephesians 4.29? It's our words to other believers. So Yahweh uses our speech to give grace. Are you aware of the fact that you can be a means of grace in another believer's life? That's kind of a sobering thought, I think. That's, that's kind of, should make us take a pause there and think, wow, I can impart grace to a fellow believer? Peter put it this way, as each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now the Greek word here for gift is charisma, and it has its grace. So as each one has received grace, use that to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. Alright? Minister to one another. We receive grace, we're to use it to minister 
and serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. Now, think about this for a minute with me, will you please? How important is God's grace to you? I mean, we can't make it through a day apart from the grace of God. We just just can't do it, okay? We need enabling power to live our lives. And this power, this grace can only come through the ministry of others, all right? Now, you may be thinking, how is this even possible? How can I minister grace? How can I give grace to somebody else? Well, have you ever been in the pit of despair because of circumstances you're facing? Have you ever just been overcome, overwhelmed by your circumstances? Remember Elijah when he was under the juniper tree wishing to die? God, just kill me. He's just depressed. He's, you ever been there under that juniper tree? I have. And in those times, Yahweh uses His Word to strengthen me. He uses prayer to strengthen me. But one thing He uses a lot that I don't think we factor into much is He uses fellow believers. Okay? And when I think of times of trial and persecution, I remember the comfort that I received from my friends. Friends who gave me encouraging words. Friends who gave me words of support, words of comfort. Just coming along and saying, you know, brother, God is still sovereign. He's on the throne. You know, I know that. But to hear it from somebody else is encouraging. Okay? It it gives me support. It gives me comfort. My friends reminded me of what I knew the Scripture said but just, you know, hey, God is faithful. You'll get through this. You know, God's with you. You know, hang in there. They ministered to me. They ministered grace. And so God uses people in our lives in times like this to minister grace to us. Ministering to one another in a time of need is an important means of which the Lord mediates His grace to us. People, this is one importance of, I think, one of the importances of meeting together because so we can minister grace to one another. You can't minister grace if you're not in contact with other believers. And I just think this is such an overlooked part of fellowship that we are ministers, Ephesians 4.29 says, of grace. And we can be used by God to get people through difficult situations to literally minister grace to them. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. Lord, it's been a great epistle. I've enjoyed both these so much and and just you know lord it's hard to study these epistles and not see a first century coming of christ lord i pray that you'd open people's eyes you'd open their minds to the truth of the word of god help them understand lord eschatology matters because truth matters father thank you for your grace to us and i pray we'd be aware of our words to others and you would use us lord in each other's lives as a minister of grace, encouraging, building one another, supporting one another. Thank you, Lord, for the family of God. Amen.